Do the trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Our bestseller is all they're cracked up to be. Here at Terrible Book Club, we explore whether you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. You ever passed a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Welcome to episode 145 of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Paris, and this is Chris. Hello. This time we read Arabiala. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try again. Arabiala. Arab. Arabala. Oh, why can't I say this word? Maybe because it's stupid and made up. Arabiolosis. Ar- Arabiolosis. Arabiolosis. That's what it is. Arabiolosis. That's how Mr. Masri says it. This time we read Arabiolosis by Nathan Masri. This was suggested to us by our patron, Lynn. This book seems to be unavailable anywhere except the Target website. So that's where we had to get it. With the author's supposed background in marketing, you have to wonder what happened that this is only at Target now. Very specific distribution model. Well, it used to be elsewhere. At least if his marketing that's still kicking around is to be believed, it was available on like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So I don't know why Target would have like a special <laughs> the, tolerance for this. The only supporters left. In any case, uh, if this is your first time listening to this show, what we do here at the Terrible Book Club is we read books that we assume will be bad based on their cover, title, summary, or some combination of the three. And sometimes, like today, though, we read books that our patrons, listeners, or friends recommend. So generally, we do the opposite of what most people do when they're in a bookstore or browsing the internet looking for something to read. Usually, this experiment results in a disappointing read, but once in a while, we do actually end up liking the book. Uh, Content warnings today, in addition to our usual barnyard language, today's episode includes discussion or mention of HIV and AIDS, gender and sexual politics in Saudi Arabia, and spoiled rich children, which I... I Key component to this one. Yeah, so. I don't know if that's a, a real content warning, but um, yeah, it's... It is It is not. A lot of, a lot of privilege in here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah let's, let's frame it yeah, that way. Yeah, it's got a lot of privilege. Toxic levels of privilege. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Chris, do you want to read the back of the book, the summary? Sure. This will be a chore in some ways. (laughs) So this is what's actually printed on the back of this physical book. This is a great way to get introduced to Mr. (laughs) Masri's writing style. The author distilled the essence of personal hardships, self-introspection, and suppression so explicitly relatable to every reader. This self-help memoir will ignite your mind and empower you with 10 laws of self-reflection, self-awareness, and self-introspection. It is a guide for critical thinking, even under the most suppressed circumstances. Once in a lifetime, 
everyone will experience some form of suppression, which must be defeated for positive change in your life, fast. Nathan Masri has become like a prisoner for injustice, like a soldier fighting for his life, and like a survivor thriving out of suppression for his freedom. Learn about his journey and find inspiration in his fire to succeed and transform against all odds. What he thought he wanted wasn't what he needed. Little did he know, Nathan was destined to lead a new forthcoming purpose and movement called Arabiolosis, which is relatable to human beings worldwide. Once in a lifetime, everyone will experience some form of suppression, the act to stop yourself or someone from living, thinking, and feeling, which must be defeated for real positive change in your life fast. Yes, that was repeated. Nathan's fast-forward self-reflection insights and grasp to the unedited truth says it as it is, boldly, honestly, and sarcastically. About the author, Nathan Masri, founder of world's first Garfield-themed restaurant, Garfield Eats, <laughs> official licensee of Nickelodeon slash Viacom CBS, and public speaker. All right. Okay. I feel like All Chris... Right. Okay, so Nathan Masri is just Kang and Kodos, right? Like, that's... Like, <laughs> At the same yes. time, somehow. Yes. Um, Can we... I just... Paris, this sentence here... Which one? Nathan Masri has become like a prisoner for injustice. Explain to me it has become, what that oh, means. Oh, the clause? Um, yes. Yeah, he's equating his personal struggles with uh, people who are imprisoned for you know, social or political persecution, which is a, a terrible but, comparison to make if you're Nathan Masri. I don't, <laughs> don't understand, but the phrasing has become like a prisoner for injustice. You're, you're imprisoned. You're imprisoned for injustice to help injustice. You're in prison. Yeah, his his command of English sentence structure is not great. I mean, I'm going to assume this is just because he grew up you know, he was born in Canada, but um, also spoke French and um, Arabic as a kid. So I'm I'm guessing that maybe growing up, you know, with three different languages when you're a kid makes things a little harder. Still, when you are fabulously wealthy, one would think you could hire a fucking editor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <sighs> I don't know if this is English as a second language so much as just kind of not being great at putting words together yeah that's that's what i mean you know regardless of your okay. you know regardless <laughs> of like well and i don't know i struck i i was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt but he was born and raised in canada until he was 10 then he moved to saudi arabia yeah, I feel like then that's back plenty of time canada. that's plenty of time right Paris? i don't know i don't i don't want to pick you know everyone's language okay fluency is different but fair enough but i do agree in that the way that he puts thoughts together could be finessed by an editor which he can oh. afford and does not have which makes me upset with him okay uh. before we move on to anything else i also want to point out the amazing leading of the about the author with founder of uh. world's first garfield themed restaurant garfield eats which we had no idea about before we read this and then no. we brought this to d and ken and they were like oh you don't know about garfield eats in, in which we were launched into a world <laughs> of 
But then that's never mentioned in this book. You would think if he's so proud of it and this is like a self-help success story, he would bring that up. It might be because it was a horrible failure. Um, it might <laughs> it might also be because so, so you know how the first point was like, ooh, founder of the world's first Garfield restaurant. And the second point is, ooh, I'm an official licensee of Nickelodeon Viacom. Yeah, Viacom and Nickelodeon pulled his fucking license. Uh, like, I think the end of 2021 or maybe earlier. So, they saw this, I mean. They saw the strange A on YouTube review and were like, excuse me, sir. We're going to take this Garfield license back. Yeah. You clearly don't have the responsibility to handle Garfield. Well, and furthermore, I don't really think it's an achievement to be a licensee of something. <laughs> like, I mean, sure, certain brands have a lot of, like, uh, criteria you have to meet in order to be approved, but... Largely, if you have enough money, you're going to be able to meet the yeah, criteria. Yeah, I feel like so. that's the criteria <laughs> yeah. most of the time. Is, you are rich, you asshole. you give us money for it? Cool. Um, yeah, and public speaker, I mean, that's a very loose uh, <laughs> uh, categorization. All the speaking I've ever seen him do, at least on the internet, is clearly paid. You know, like he clearly pays to be on small time TV channels and puts up stuff on YouTube and makes his little short films. But I mean, a public speaker is somebody who is paid to speak in public because someone else wants to hear them, not the other way around. They don't pay to speak in public because they want other people to hear them. Right. Like, I mean, that's my understanding of a public speaker. Um, I, you know, this is a delineation I hadn't considered, but I think you're absolutely correct. Here. I mean, I could be wrong, but like, that's my understanding. This was like the argument you and I got in about what defines a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we did fight pretty fiercely. Uh, there was a three, there was a three way fight between me, Chris and Tris, uh, Chris's roommate and my other best friend about what a restaurant is. Uh, so just so you know, okay. this doesn't this this banter yeah. does not only live on this podcast. <laughs> and I still I still think I still think if you're serving food over a counter, oh, it's a restaurant. Chris, we settled this. You are incorrect. <laughs> okay, I will see that. I'm just I think in my in my own reality, I'm going to live as I see fit, All right. like everyone else is doing lately. All right, Jordan Peterson, you live in the reality okay. you can think in your head. That's fine. Um, <laughs> okay, let's continue. All right. I, God, I just feel like I have so many <laughs> things to talk about before we even get to the book. Um, should we briefly just touch on the very basics of Garfield Eats and then welcome people into the orange cheese sauce void if they yes, wish? Yes, I mean, honestly... This is uh, the case where the book is far less interesting than what's going on underneath and around it. Yes, very true. The book misses everything interesting. It is the most (laughs) distilled, bland, tapioca version of this guy's life. It's so bizarre. Much like Garfield eats food. (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'd still probably rather eat tapioca than Garfield eats, even though I don't like it much. Anyway, Chris, how would you describe... The Garfield Eats saga. Apparently, it is a ghost kitchen. Was. Which was a ghost well, kitchen. Well, yeah, I guess. Very important verb I there. I guess it's, re- it's, re- it's been resurrected as Scooby-Dooey. <laughs> so, fuck. 
Yeah, it didn't work the first. I just got to use a different cartoon. That was clearly the problem. Well, one not owned by Nickelodeon or Viacom, CBS. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> now Hanna Barbera. He can get to put a Hanna Barbera official license. Yes, that is there. that is correct. Okay, uh, so a ghost kitchen is a thing where the food is only available for delivery through apps, usually stuff like Uber Eats, or in this case, a dedicated Garfield Eats app in which you could order the food, perhaps play some games, uh, which I I don't know why you'd combine those two things. But oh, you okay. can also watch Garfield cartoons while you're waiting for your food. I, You know what? At least that's somewhat on brand, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and... Food items included things like lasagna. Of course, lasagna. Yes. You got to have that for Garfield stuff. And of course, Garfield likes pizzas shaped like himself because I... Circle isn't good enough for pizza. We've been doing Circle for hundreds of years at this point. And that's, you know, that's a stupid old way of doing pizza. Wouldn't you like a bunch of lopsided slices, like one with Garfield's ear on it, and then another one that is kind of round at the bottom, but also uneven? No, circle bad. Garfield shaped pizza, great. So like circle bad, but what about big circle with two littler circles and then fuzzy lines? <laughs> yeah, that that'll work. You can also get a Garfuccino. So oh. you know, <laughs> covering all the <laughs> which, Garfield bases. Which I just kept reading as a Barfuccino. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord, yeah. So um, it, there were other very bizarre things about this, uh, besides the concept and the fact that the food was largely terrible. The prices for everything were rather high for what they were. Um, and the, I mean, the, uh, it had a, it had a physical storefront for a while, which is weird because it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't really a kitchen, but they would just reheat stuff, I guess, you know. Um, and the physical storefront was in Toronto, and the the awning over the windows at the front of the building was, of course, orange, and the logo was very small, and then in much larger letters, in Comic Sans, of course, was, of course, was the, the fun the font logo for the slogan. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm so sorry. My brain is completely melted between the heat and having to read this book today. Um, the logo, or the logo. Oh my god, <laughs> Chris, help me. You can do it, Paris. Help. Don't let Garfield win. Help. Um, the slogan <laughs> next to it, which was, what was it? Feed me, pet me, don't leave me, or something? Feed me, lovely. Feed me, love me, don't <laughs> Leave me? I shit, I should have wrote this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I this book really hurt us. <laughs> it did. Love me, feed me, love never me, leave feed me. me, don't leave don't me. Don't leave me, which was a a, tra <laughs> a a slightly incorrect translation. Paris, I didn't know a restaurant could be clingy. <laughs> well, there you go. I, yeah, it's a really weird. I mean, it's a, apparently it's a line from Garfield. I would not have known that had I not read that somewhere. But um, I, why would you put that on the front of your restaurant in Comic Sans? For, and this is supposed to be a guy who's like a, a marketing maverick. He's a businessman and he knows how to market. He went to school for marketing and he markets. And it's like, and your idea was <laughs> Comic Sans and Garfield. It, it <laughs> again. I think this just. 
further props up the uh, idea that he is an alien and not actually a human being from Earth. I gotta let you guys know, the Tommy Wiseau levels are off the charts when you watch anything with Mr. Masri in it. Paris sent me a video that was like 50 questions with Nathan Masri because, of course, someone wants to ask him these questions. And it was full of, like, weird audio editing, awkward cadence in speech, and questions that no peop- no normal person would ask uh, someone. And my favorite part is when the interviewer i suppose knocks on the door it immediately opens there's nathan and the interviewer is like i have 50 questions for you mr masry what's your favorite food like instantly launches into it before he has a chance to react and he's just rolling with it you would just think with the amount of money he has that he could at least fake it a little better right um honestly after watching footage of him interacting and being on camera it it made me a little worried that i don't know i guess you know, we're still punching up here. This guy is literally a billionaire's son, if you haven't picked up on that yet. Um, but he, I just feel like there might be something a little askew mentally, which makes me a little concerned. And it would also explain why the writing is kind of jumbled and, you know, not really parsed well and the thoughts aren't really all there. <sighs> just, it's just it's Paris, kind of a if I'm being honest with you, if I'm being honest with you, I think it's really just sheer isolation. He talks a lot. We'll get into this in a moment about the book, but he talks a lot about being bored at home a lot, which means he probably wasn't interacting with other people that often right, right. when he was young, which can lead to some awkward things like this. True, That's true. It could just be a lack of socialization. Um, anyhow, we've done a lot of preamble. Uh, we should just quickly get into... The character setting the very brief summary and then just talk about what was good about it and then spend another yes. three hours on what was bad about it. <laughs> okay. So, characters and setting. Uh, really short list here. You have Nathan Masry, author, board man, and Garfield enthusiast. But we are not told he's a Garfield enthusiast in this book, to be clear. That is never mentioned. Except yes. for on the back we, we... where he says he's an official license <laughs> of Garfield's guy. Uh, his unnamed parents, I don't remember hearing their names at all no. in the course of the text. Just mom and dad. And then various family members and friends that pop in, but you don't really need to know the names of it. doesn't really matter. They're there for seconds. I can remember maybe two or three names. There's a Paris in here, actually. There's a cousin Paris. There is a cousin so that's Paris. the one I latched on. That's the one I latched on to, and I quickly, uh, I was glad that she left fairly quickly. Yeah, same. Um, Settings, we've got uh, Montreal, right? Or Toronto? A little bit, yeah. Um, He, I think he's in both, actually. Okay, so a little bit of Montreal, a little bit of Toronto, and then Saudi Arabia, and then Dubai, and then he just kind of keeps flipping between... Canada. He hits LA yeah, once, yeah. I think. And then at the end, he's towards, he's in LA. Yeah. All right. Um, I can, uh, do you want to read the summary? Yeah, I'll okay. go for it. Right. Nathan grew up in Montreal, but then at the age of 10, moved to Saudi Arabia, where he experienced culture shock and never quite fit in. He also experienced some vague trauma in his teenage years that we never really get a clear picture of, but may have involved endless hours of old American TV and Nescafe. <laughs> He was bored for eight straight years. Eventually, Nathan leaves Saudi Arabia to attend school in Canada, starts a breast cancer charity in 2007 at age 20, tries to become an actor in LA, but decides to become a producer instead. 
So he makes four short films, creates five treatments and scripts, moves to Dubai to try and get them made, and... Oh, wait, no, it just ends there. That's just it. The end. <laughs> if that felt abrupt to you at the end, it also did for me. Yep. We get, we get nothing. We get no details on anything that's, you know, of, of any emotional value. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Uh, you know what I forgot? I had these scripts and I moved to Dubai and the end, I guess. I've I've done it. You know what I... F- <laughs> That's all I had to do. I forgot to do is see if his story about the Victorious Breast Cancer Foundation was real. Um, because he never seems to talk about it, but it is in this book, uh, which I thought was interesting. Like, it's not on any of his social media that I saw and I remember doing like a, you know a couple minutes of searching and I couldn't find it but I also thought well this is something he did in Saudi Arabia maybe it's just like you know it's not on yeah. Google but um, but I mean there's not there isn't even one mention of it anywhere except in his book so it makes me me think that it might not be real or like he did donate money but it wasn't it wasn't like a I don't know he claims it was a real charity but it's very weird that you can't really do any fact checking on like a lot of stuff in his life but again Mm. could just be the you know the miles between us who knows um yeah so let's talk about things that were good here okay i really had to dig deep (laughs) i guess the vague platitudes about believing in yourself are fine that's always good can't get you know can't get too mad about believing in yourself and you really got to believe in yourself to go hey you know what's a great idea garfield restaurant yeah, that's very true. You have to believe in yourself hard. <laughs> so much I mean, belief. Can't take that away from Nathan. Uh, I mean, I think he does have a couple of points. Not that he provides any context or develops the ideas at all, but there are some things he mentions that make sense. Um, The needless gendering of everything and the connection people make with queerness being explicitly associated with interests of the quote-unquote opposite gender. Like, he calls that out as bullshit, and I totally agree with him. He is right about that. Um, He also talks about how the repression in Saudi Arabia is pretty extreme, and one of the examples he gives is that, you know, people get beaten by the Mutawin if they don't subscribe to Saudi Arabia's dress code, um, keeping, you know, keeping men and women apart, and then not letting people drink water during the day during Ramadan, even though it's like over a hundred degrees and, you know, and how all of this has led to, um, an interpretation of Islam at large that is really negative and not representative of most people who are of that faith. Sure. He's totally right about that. Yes. Um, lastly, he kind of like every once in a while, you'll get a little, a little ember, of self-awareness that he will immediately discard and forget about. But they do show up here and there. Uh, Like, for example, 
he does say towards the beginning uh, that, you know, you shouldn't let anger get the best of you and how when he was a teenager and he was upset about stuff, he would lash out at his mom. And he was like, yeah, you know, I just didn't have the emotional intelligence. And I knew that I know now that that's wrong to do. Like, okay, good. You got there. Yes. Um, however, we we really don't <laughs> don't get anything beyond that. We get a very, like, declarative... And then I did this, and then it was like this, and then I don't know, and now we're over here in a different year, and it, it was just... It doesn't feel like he spirals that out into anything more besides it was wrong to be mad at my mom when I was younger because she yes. was just trying to help me out. Exactly. And, you know, this is also something I deal with a whole lot that sometimes, honestly, Paris, you are on the receiving end of, which is shitty, but just, like, realizing when you're letting just needless anger get, you know, when you when you don't understand that you're not doing a good job of keeping it in and you're just getting snippy at people for no reason. Usually for me, it's anger. It's literally just like I need to eat and I just become less of an asshole to people. Yeah, you got to keep yourself on a feeding schedule. But uh, yeah, so I there ends the things that were good about this book. I have nothing else good to say about it. It's just a I, weird, bad yeah, ride here on out. Like I, <laughs> I, I can't really uh, support anything else in here besides... Some of the extremely generalized cliches that usually pop up in self-help books are fine. I uh, see. I disagree. I think. I think generalized cliches in self-help books are like astrology. They mean nothing and do nothing for people. And I think it's very lazy to put them in a book. <laughs> so, hey, speaking of laziness, why don't we start off things that were bad with perhaps my favorite thing about this book, Paris? So on the cover, there's a stamp in the top right corner that says unedited. <laughs> and usually, usually when a book has some kind of unedited or raw kind of <laughs> marking on the front, let's say. You won't see this on about, MSNBC. Yeah. Whole right. Foods so won't sell some this kind book. Of, <laughs> 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 only Target is willing to sell the truth no uh it, usually when that's on a piece of media it has something to do with with that kind of thing right like oh it's not pc I'm, i don't care who i offend i'm gonna be real and tell it like it is but in this case it actually just means he didn't edit shit in this. <laughs> yeah that's very true there's so many like weird mistakes and repeated sentences and phrases that it, it really is just promising you that, like, no, I didn't pay anyone to edit this. Also, this is just a first draft, baby. Who cares about checking things out? There is one page where – so most of the book is formatted where there's, like, a line at the top and a line at the bottom to separate the text from the rest. You know, it's just like a normal book. It's like a, it's like a border. Sometimes. It's just a border. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And it, there's just one page where the text is running into the border so it looks like there's a strike through thing happening or the line of text is crossed out and that happens never again on any page so i gotta wonder what kind of weird microsoft word formatting shit was happening here that never got checked on on the drafts yeah i mean and the errors just pile up you know it's not like we're dealing with oh a couple things that anybody would miss it's Constant misspellings, constant sentence structure, like confusion, clauses that appear and disappear at will. I mean, it doesn't. The word, the, the phrase like a prisoner happens three times in one paragraph. And one time it's just by itself as a dangling clause <laughs> with no connection to the rest of the paragraph. Just dangling by a 
a sad little thread. Just... It's like he came up with the phrase like a prisoner one day when he was writing this and just tried to craft a whole paragraph around it and then forgot to delete the phrase that made him start writing this at the, at, when he did. Yeah, I don't know what it was. Yeah, it's very, it's got a very stream of consciousness kind of unhinged, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't even say it's, it would be better if it were actually like a, a casual retelling, but it's really just sort of the thoughts you have in your head before they're organized. That's how it came across to me anyway. Very, it, it's like not even a first draft. It's like draft zero, right? There's like, <laughs> like nothing has happened to transform the, these thoughts between what happened in his head and the paper other than that he just, he just put them on the paper and that was it. Um, That's writing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other things to do with kind of the technical writing. Um, we've got a lot of awkward descriptions. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read one from <clears throat> the beginning, where he's trying to explain how much he loves his grandmother, which is fine. Nothing wrong with loving your grandma. That's good. It's good to see a man being like, "Yeah, I love my grandma. That's cool." Um, however, I forgot to note the page, so this might take a minute. Ah, okay. So this is actually page two. Uh, when he's talking about his grandmother, he says, I was content to simply go see my cousins, about whom I had heard so much, and also to see my grandmother, Noel Masri, who had stolen my heart on the day I was born. Okay. Sure, that's one way to put it. Well, I just think it's it's a little weird because... You know, in common parlance, when you say someone stole your heart, it's a romantic love. And also, it's never like a baby to an adult. It's the other way around if it's if it's meant, you know, in a non-romantic sense. Yes, yes. It's supposed to be the grandmother's heart was stolen by the baby is probably the way you really yeah. would want to put that. Yeah, and I it just led me to thinking like, how could you possibly know that you don't remember the first day you were born? Like, it's just so, it's just a little awkward, right? It's not the worst thing ever, but it's clear that, you know, it just came out of his brain. He put it on the paper and never thought about it again. Uh, there's another line later where he's trying to say something about oppression, and he ends up saying what no U.S. citizen has gone through, and it just sounds really shitty, like, I know that he is intending to say that people in the U.S. haven't lived through the same type of oppression that exists in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but instead, it just comes off as him saying, like, people in the U.S. don't experience any oppression. And it's like, my dude, my bro, have do you know anything yeah. about the United <laughs> States? Um, and then lastly, my favorite awkward thing about this book is Nathan Masri's persistent Oprah fetish. Okay, yeah, this is worth talking about. Yeah, it is. So, like, if you really like Oprah, that's fine. But um, I just feel like this goes to a place that is confusing and uncomfortable. Would you like me to read this, Paris? Uh, yeah, yeah, Chris, are you going to read the entire letter for us? Because I think you should. Yes. All right. So in the book, he explains, just for a little background, Nathan explains that, uh, you know, the television that they got in Saudi Arabia was pretty, like, edited and they would get things late and anything they got from the U.S. was maybe not great. But he did get Oprah somehow. 
and watched Oprah all the time, especially when he was laid up from back surgery. Uh, and he just loves Oprah. Just, just th- thinks she's so great and inspirational. And I know a lot of people think that. I have mixed feelings about Oprah. That's that's a story for another day. Um, but you know, it's at first you're just like, oh, he just has like surface level appreciation for Oprah and her inspirational success story. But then, but then he puts this letter in the book that he apparently wrote and sent to Oprah when he was how old was he? Like fourteen. Yes, around 15? there, 14, 15. Yeah, so imagine a young boy, 14, 15, writing and sending this letter to Oprah Winfrey. Dear Oprah, my name is Nathan, and I am an 18-year-old, okay, 18, who loves hot Oprah. I know it's funny and weird for a teenage guy to be such a big fan of Oprah instead of Snoop Dogg, but life has compelled me to turn towards you, and thank God it did, because it would be a loss to miss a person so full of wisdom. Oprah, I would like to tell you in a concise way about what you have done for me and how you have played a great role in my turbulent life. I reside in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where I have spent most of my teenage life feeling like I was in prison. I have been deprived of a social or personal life and caught up in a sudden culture clash after moving from Canada to this repressive country. It has been a life of tragedy, trauma, depression, conflict, feuds, troubling emotions, a fatigued mind, rage, nervous breakdowns, and other negativities which threatens to make a monster out of me. In addition to these hot spices on top of my life, I have been through surgery for my spinal cord, seven hours under the knife to correct my scoliosis. Simply put, I had no life. I hardly knew what the word meant living in this country. What made my life easier and gave me a reason to survive every single day while going through what no U.S. citizen has gone through is you, Oprah. I have waited not just for your poignant shows, but for your innocent soul and erudite mind to advise me what to do, how to deal, and most importantly, how to live through hard times. (laughs) I remember vividly sitting on my favorite couch and and tearing up. As you said, patience is sour, but then the end, it is sweet. It felt like I couldn't wait for that time of fulfillment. I wasn't even sure it was for real. After my surgery, when I couldn't walk, I used to sit in bed and forget my pain of recovery when you came on. Believe it, Oprah, because you complete me with your words, your heart, and your compassion. I believe you know that you are a person who cares and has lots to give. I know you get that a lot, but I am a different case. You know why? Because no one loves you as much as I do. I am now writing a book about my tragic life that I want to introduce to the Oprah's Book Club. Sincerely yours, Nathan Masri. Okay. Thank you. So, Thank you, Chris. At the, <laughs> at the top of that, it really just seems like he's doing a sales pitch at the end for like, listen, I wrote this book. I know it's going to be great. So let me, I promise you, Oprah, it was you that I was listening to all the time. Paris, it feels like he really wasn't watching Oprah and he just made this up to, in an attempt to get this on Oprah's book club. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. I don't, I, <laughs> I feel pretty strongly that he didn't actually write and send that letter when he was 18, but that this was like a you know, uh, a postscript idea like, oh, what if I do this? And oh, and I want to get my book on her book club or, you know, something like that. Yeah, it's just it's just weird. I uh, anyway, 
it goes on like this for 175 pages. <laughs> this, so, yeah. You know, the writing is not descriptive. It's very declarative. So, for example, he talks about, oh, I was so bored. I just sat on the couch and drank my Nescafe. And instead of actually describing that feeling of unrelenting boredom and misery and gloom and how desperate he was to escape, he just keeps saying, I wanted to escape. I was so bored. And it's like, my dude, that does not make me want to care about that's not what good writing is that's not what good writing is no so there so you get no real sense of his desperation or longing um the narrative just kind of jumps and wanders and to be clear i'm not advocating for like oh you must describe each teeth brushing and meal and every second of the day but there's going to be some organization in your writing right um and whether this is supposed to be, you know, in chronological order or not, whether it's like by subject or, you know, maybe it is supposed to be a little a little zany and confusing because maybe it's a type of book where you're trying to get across, you know, how it felt to like, I don't know, be on drugs or, or whatever. Um, whatever the case is for whatever type of book you're writing, you need to have a plan for organization up front and then execute that. This is really just like I said, stream of consciousness draft zero material <laughs> like <laughs> um no it's like you know like session zero for a role-playing game if you're playing D or pathfinder or something you know the first time you meet uh for those of you who aren't huge nerds like us the first time you meet you come up with your characters you make sure your party makes sense like the you know the group of your characters together you decide what world you want to play in whatever the dm takes some things into consideration and then the next time you meet you actually play the game so this is what this feels like. Just like shit from a notebook that he just was like, cut and print. Done. Unedited. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. And Chris, you brought up how there's so many moments, you know, due to this sort of just slapdash style, there are so many moments in the book that are just baffling because you're desperately trying to connect. Like at the end of the, the you know, at the end of the most recent sentence you've read, you're like, wait. How does this connect to the sentences before it? <laughs> What's happening? Um, and I understand that you have some excerpts for us to demonstrate this. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can find some here. Okay. Um, I have I have uh, a few that I can, I can just talk about kind of without reading them verbatim. Um, on pages 91 and 92, he goes from talking about the harms of the intense patriarchy in Saudi Arabia in terms of using women as pawns and controlling their entire lives. And and then, without warning, the next paragraph switches to talking about how the respect for the father means that Saudi culture doesn't have any social ills and makes for a healthier family. And you're just like, what? You were just saying <laughs> that's not good. How having the dad or males in the family control everything was really negative and he was talking about all these protests that women were doing and stuff and then he turns around and immediately is like but it makes the family healthier though it's what i it's like he didn't put any thought into the sequence of these paragraphs or what he was even saying you know a lot of it comes off as a thing you know everyone has conflicting thoughts in their minds right like we're not you know no one no one is walking around being like ah yes i am totally left-leaning or totally conservative or whatever and and it's almost as though Nathan has presented us with just his inner monologue, like just fighting with himself about things without ever actually doing the work to come to any determination so that he could communicate that to other people. 
That's how it felt to me anyway, because he'll contradict himself constantly depending on which uh, chapter you're in or what paragraph. There's, oh my God, there's also this totally baffling section where he just randomly starts talking about how he got into a cab in London and he started talking to the cabbie. This is uh, page 129 and 130 for those of you reading reading at home along with us. Um, uh, the, <laughs> Went down to the Target and had to grab myself a copy. <laughs> well, I just I just want to have a reference point in case people want to, you know, see what we're talking about. Um, and he talks about getting this cab and talking to the cab driver in London about Princess Diana. I, I don't really recall why they were talking about this. I think he just asked the driver, like, how do you feel about the royal family? And the guy was like, oh, we love Princess Diana. And then he's like, oh, but, uh, you know, and then he launches into this conspiracy about how Diana died. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I honestly, I don't fucking know enough about that whole situation to actually tell you what's a conspiracy and what's reality. <laughs> I just know that she died in a horrific way and she was like hounded by the press and she was very miserable in her life despite being in the royal family. And um, the cabbie starts talking about this conspiracy about how, oh, the queen had her murdered because she was pregnant with Dodi Fayed's baby. And, you know, those of us who grew up in the 90s remember this, I'm sure, at least a little bit. And, you know, we're going through this. And given uh, the content early in their book when he's talking about the oppression of women um, in Saudi culture and how... You know, he really thinks women should be free and have a say. Like, we're getting to the end of the Princess Diana story, and the conclusions that he draws are baffling. I am going to find the paragraph, because <laughs> yes. holy shit. I was like, is this the same person? Um, Diana died brokenhearted and was never truly loved because she never believed that she would be loved. On a daily basis, she had fed her mind with negative thoughts, delving deep into loneliness, emptiness, and lack of fulfillment. She focused on what she lacked rather than looking at what she had. If you give praise and gratitude for your blessings, the universe itself will plot in your favor. But she was impatient and needy, and these two attributes are destructive to the soul. Um, How do you know any of this? So, and wow. so he's blaming Princess Diana for her own death? And depression. But because, but she just wasn't putting out that right mental energy, bro. Oh, uh, yeah. I so there's, there's a lot of stuff like this. Um, there's a set like his ten laws, which we'll get uh, into later. That's I don't even know. One of the I don't even know I if I upon. fucking care about the ten laws anymore. I'm just okay. I'm so I'm just honestly, I think the best example is how the book ends. This is the final page of the book, Paris. <laughs> okay. I leaned in close to Roy and said, I am what I think, no matter where I am or how others perceive me. Roy became frustrated. Are you going to answer my question? What is your purpose, Nathan? <laughs> I looked away, watching the cars that drove by in the busy streets of modern Riyadh, then said, TYKSA. TYKSA? Roy said curiously. What's that? Still looking out the window, I could see in the distance the beautiful Al Faisala Tower. Designed by the architect Norman Foster. Thank you, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. For what? I finally turned to Roy, looking into his eyes with a proud smile. For being introspective. I think I'm a Claire empath, Roy. What? And he never the word Claire empath is never mentioned anywhere in the rest of the book. Empathy is barely mentioned in the rest of the book. What's a Claire empath? 
by the way a clairvoyant empath clearly okay but explain <laughs> don't just leave me here nathan oh no sorry explain <laughs> no um so you may have noticed that in that excerpt chris read he toyed with the idea of i think therefore i am basically and he you notice this in a lot of what he writes and especially in the laws there's even one that seems like he cop he copped like a, a Marquis de Sade quote, and you know we we shit we fuck we die blah 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 like pretty famous thing that the Marquis supposedly said. Um, and there is uh, one of his rules is um, uh, every human lives on the seven F's: fame, fortune, fucking friends, family, farts, and a food. I just okay. want to know why farts is elevated among all of them. <laughs> why? I mean, you know, fart is universally funny to all humans. It is a pretty universal thing. I can kind of, kind of see what that means. But you're right that it's weird to elevate that amongst all the other necessities. Do you, Paris, do you have to fart to live? Um, potentially. I mean, it does elevate, uh... Um, abdominal er, elevate it does um alleviate abdominal distress. <laughs> um, okay. Later on in that same law, he says, "Actor, director, doctor, or housekeeper—they are all the same. Don't let them fool you." Who is them in this case? Every other person. He's basically trying to say, "Don't let anyone else try to bully you into thinking that they're better than you." But he does it in the worst way possible by not explaining that at all. Let, let's just read some of the more weirdly phrased ten of the ten laws at this point here, Paris. Never let emotion overrule rationality, unless emotion has a rational justification. Yeah. So, you know, don't be emotional unless you really think you have a good reason for it, which is when most people are emotional. <laughs> I don't think you're providing any new insight there besides like hey if you really think it's justified to act emotionally then go ahead do it i guess yeah his, so basically his laws don't really make any sense i mean it's just more of the same kind of confusing not thought through stuff that we've already said i am trying to get us through these fucking notes chris um also each chapter has like an unnecessary filler page that's a summary of the chapter except it elucidates nothing in fact it adds to the problem of this book <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you didn't want to read the ten laws oh, after all. Well, I, I just, Chris, it's, it's a school night, and we already we have another episode to record. I mean, we can read them. You know what? Let's. I'm just gonna. I don't want to read all. I don't want. Okay, I'm yeah, fine. Them. Do it all. Well, I don't care. All right, all right. Fuck this. All right, my rage is now turned into like dogged determination. <laughs> right. We've come back around. All right. So, so again, this. We, I actually, I, I should say again, but I, I don't think we actually stated this. The book title is Arabile. Oh God, Ar Arabiolysis. Arabiolysis. Yeah, Ar Ar Arabiolysis. Arabiolysis. But the sub. Keep saying okay, it, you'll get but it. But there's three subtitles which we didn't read. <laughs> um, the first subtitle is Masri's Ten Life Changing Laws. Uh, the second one is a self help memoir and guide. And then lastly, we have my favorite, time to blow up your brains and wake the fuck up, except fuck has an asterisk for the you. 
Also, the phrasing time to blow up your brains. Also, not really how you would say, like, my mind is blown. Right. It is. It is a very. Uh, yeah, it, it's a way to get across the point. But you can tell that whoever wrote or said that doesn't quite grasp the actual phrase. You know, it's just kind of they're just translating it anyway. So we are promised 10 laws and we got law number one. Only in the darkest shadows will the brightest ideas emerge. Embrace the unordinary, the uncommon, the unlikely for an extraordinary life. So again, the law here is embrace the uncommon or the unlikely so you can have an awesome life. Law number two. You can never take away people's perception of you, and other people can never take away your self-esteem. But with your self-esteem, you can alter other people's perceptions and build a country. Okay, so... What? Where's the country coming into this? I don't know. Uh, so, again, rule number two is you can't really control what other people think of you, and you can't let other people take your self-esteem away. And with your self-esteem intact, you can change people's perceptions, even though I just said that you couldn't. Also, if you're really, if, if you're really uh, proud of yourself, you can build a country. That's law number well, two. How, wait, how, wait but like, how does statecraft come into this? He's never, there's no politicians or anything. None, no political aspirations no, don't worry about are it. mentioned in the book. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Okay, fine. Right. Moving on. Let's keep going. All right. Rule number three. Never let emotion overrule rationality unless emotion has a rational justification. Only then are you allowed to feel. Until then, you just think with your mind to drive your heart. Don't be a passenger of your own life. So you're only allowed to feel if your emotion has a rational justification, but you can't let over emotion overrule rationality. And also don't, be a passenger in your own life, which seems like a completely disconnected thought. <laughs> sure. Don't be a passenger. Just drive your heart. Your heart is a car and your mind <laughs> is the driver yes. in the heart car. Yes. <laughs> Correct. Your mind driver drives your heart car and okay. you gotta make sure you're in the mind driver's seat and not the passenger mind seat. Okay. Okay, um, makes perfect sense. And, and and to be clear, you're never given any rules as to how to determine if your emotion is seated in rationality or not. He just says this and just hopes you figure it out. All right, law number four. Boredom is an epidemic disease fatal to dreams, innovation, and ambition. There is always something new to do or some habit to undo, but both require work. I, I mean, no one... No one except a very privileged person would feel like this, that boredom is a disease, I think. Yeah, and we can yeah, we can get into that section of things a little bit later after we recite the, the rest of the laws here. But that's a pretty big glaring aspect of why this book doesn't really work as well as Mr. Masry might think it does. Yeah, I mean, it's also furthermore bizarre because he spends so much of the beginning of the book talking about how bored he was for literally years, literally eight years he was bored. So... I guess that this is a law he derived after that time had passed and he realized that he wasted it. I, it's not explained. Law number five. Empathy is your power to understand why people do what they do so you can always be ahead of the game. 
listen and self-reflect simultaneously. I don't think that makes you a good listener or a good uh, self-reflector, let's say. If you're trying to do both simultaneously, you can't you can't do those effectively at once. I disagree greatly, Mr. Masri. Thinking about yourself while trying to listen to another person is not really the definition of listening to someone that well. No, in fact, it is famously pointed out as the opposite of listening well uh, in the book and film Fight Club uh, by Chuck Palahniuk. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, when uh, what's her name? Is her name Marla? I can't remember. The... Or read or watched Fight Club, so I don't know. Oh well, or read it, I guess. Uh, but the main character, one of the main characters, is like, "You actually listen to me. It's not like every, you know, everyone else is just waiting for their turn to speak. You know, and it's supposed to be this profound thing because it was, I don't know, the year two thousand or something. Uh, but anyway, it's like a pretty common thing. I feel like most people maybe aren't good at acting upon, but they at least know like. Don't ever try to both listen to someone and also reflect and respond all at the same time. You kind of have to do those separately or you're just failing everyone, yourself included. I mean, he's not wrong about empathy, though. Empathy is a, is a powerful thing and it's hard to develop. I guess he's right there. Law number six. The evolution of science and technology has turned Homo sapiens from a thinking species into a feeling species. I... You know, those are all words that I understand individually, but when they are put together in that sentence in that order, I have no idea what he is trying to say. I think this is related to the previous law about emotional responses and rational justifications, but said a little differently. Okay, the second line is self-reflection, self-awareness, and self-introspection involves thinking. Lead with good thoughts. So think nice thoughts so that you're thinking instead of feeling. That It really just feels like a rephrasing of that previous law about don't let emotions guide your rationality. Sure, sure, but I don't understand what science, the evolution of science and technology has to do with humanity, quote-unquote, moving from a thinking species into a feeling species. Because you be on that damn phone all the time, Paris. No, no, Chris, he's saying this is a positive thing. Going from thinking to feeling. It's not a negative thing. Is he? I don't get I thought that was a negative. <laughs> <laughs> well, wouldn't it be great if the author could just explain his rules? <laughs> right. And we would have this confusion. All right, law number six. Uh, sorry, law number seven. We live in a cluttered digital world made of brands people, products, and places. If you fail to communicate your strengths boldly, then you will fail to be the next ordinary leader in today's unordinary era. Why ordinary leader? I, I can only guess it is one of the many typos in this book. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, this law is especially hilarious when you take into account the utter failure of Garfield Eats. Um, just, just delicious all right rule number eight <laughs> tastier than the food at Garfield <laughs> yes law number eight we are born independently and will die indecently this is another what the fuck this well this is another one that's just like a take on a phrase that he heard somewhere it's just like we're born alone we die alone that's all it is it's just I, once again it's another of these like pop phrases that he's heard and he's like oh i know i'll make a law out of that Learn to love and cherish yourself before learning to fall in love with others. 
Love is there for you. Start being there for yourself. Okay, fine. Fine. I'll give you that one, yes. Nathan. Yes, fine. Uh, we already talked about number nine, but it is the seven Fs. Uh, everyone lives on fame, fortune, fucking friends, family, farts, and food. Don't let people fool you into thinking otherwise. And lastly, law number 10, you always have a choice. Your destiny is measured by how much you want it against how many bad choices you make against it. Choose what makes more sense and the rest will fall into place. Believe it or not. Uh, this is clearly another law from somebody who, you know, has a ton of money and social influence and access. You know, the whole you always have a choice dialogue is... Yeah, it's a, it's a hairy one. Does. Well, the not thing everyone is, the does. Thing is, like, you do always have a choice, but framing it that way is disingenuous, right? Because, yeah, sure, you always have a choice to, I don't know, try to like flee your captor if you're if you've been kidnapped. But you know, is it smart? Will you probably be murdered immediately? Probably, yes. Maybe this is a terrible example, but it's just the first thing that came to mind. So, yes, you always have a choice, but a lot of times the options, uh, the choices that are laid before us are not equivalent. <laughs> so saying you always have a choice is a really disingenuous argument, and I yeah. fucking hate it. I also have a, kind of a problem with the phrasing, your destiny is measured by how much you want it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the concept of destiny is something you measure or quantify. No, not usually, but we are in this man's brain. Um, okay, just making sure that I also didn't have something weird going on in my brain. No, all right, can we just try to flip through these next few points or skip anything yeah. that's not super yeah. interesting? Um, there is some random drive-by racism of Lebanese people in here. I got that. I got that passage ready. Here's the passage. And so I did, where I proceeded to get to get into a stressful argument with the Lebanese secretary, who obviously had a problem with me. Now, obviously, I had my problems with the Saudi culture and mindset, but dealing with Lebanese brought a whole new set of difficulties. Mm. To understand the Lebanese, think the movie Mean Girls with Lindsay Lohan. Jealousy, materialism, hatred, and gossip flow among them, overwhelming you with negative energy. I can feel it plainly, perhaps because my spirit is not resistant to such energy. Dealing with vicious gossip taught me one valuable thing, at least, to develop a thick skin and not care about other people's opinions. Because if you do, good luck living a happy life, constantly worrying about what he said or what she thinks about you. So not really cool there to just be like, yeah, they be gossiping over there in Lebanon all the time. And also and then hatred flows through them is a pretty strong phrase. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about that one, dude. Oh. Uh. Yeah, pretty rough. Okay, um, all right. You can, you know, you just you just steamroll ahead, Chris. I'll chime in when I feel like I'm able to. Okay. When I've recovered yeah. my strength. So, fine, fine. So a couple other points that I think are worth making here that we've alluded to before, that this is a man who comes from extreme privilege. His father is a literal billionaire. There are paragraphs in this where he's like, I would come home from school all the time and hand my dirty clothes to the housekeeper. And then I would sit on the couch being bored all day. It was like, yeah, it's pretty easy to be bored all day when you have a housekeeper taking all care of all the chores and shit, bro. You don't even have to do your own laundry or make your own food all the time. Real easy to not have to think about or worry about anything and just, I don't know, decide that there's nothing to do. Also, like the weird framing of it. I just realized reading that 
paragraph that I just did that he's always framing everything through celebrity culture, like the yeah. Mean Girls and Lindsay Lohan thing, Oprah, Princess Diana. It's it's really someone who sat on the couch and watched TV all the time and framed his thinking about all of humanity through those kinds of interactions and ideas, he is, which he is cannot both, be healthy. He is both Kang and Kodos. I stand by my statement. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, like, like I said, that that extreme privilege is is rampant throughout the book, especially when he talks about his the repression that he's feeling in some ways, because he talks about being able to fly away to other countries to express his sexuality. And he's like, well, that's really the only thing people in Saudi Arabia can do. And I got to wonder, I don't think everyone in Saudi Arabia has that option. Yeah, um, it's it's just so tone deaf on the privilege front. And I guess, you know, I don't I don't want to say that just because you're wealthy and have access that you don't also have struggles, but. Generally, if you are wealthy and of a higher social class, I mean, and this person is like, this dude's family is like fabulously wealthy. His dad is a leader. He is like a, what's the word? Partner or executive or senior something at an investment firm. And he also owns a, like a capital management firm for uh, the food and beverage industry. Interesting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, this is somebody who, is like wealthy beyond I think what many of us can imagine. So sure you had your struggles, but it's also very clear that he didn't really appreciate, you know, what he had and the fact that he can talk about HIV and AIDS and having both HIV AIDS and diabetes and being gay in an extremely um, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I don't know, anti-gay country where you can actually be killed for being gay. And the fact that he just talks about all this so flippantly and as though it doesn't really affect him is just mind-boggling. Like, he has no thought as to how millions of people suffer <laughs> for these things and all he has to do is fly to a different country, you know, to you know, have some level of companionship or, you know, buy HIV AIDS drugs and diabetes and insulin without having to worry about it. And it's like, my dude, you got to have some, like, you got to have some self-awareness. He just has none. It's like, like I said, once in a great while, you'll see a little flicker of it, but then it'll disappear immediately. And he'll just, he'll just steamroll over with some dumb bullshit. And it, it was just painful to read this because, while you're reading it, you get the sense like, oh, yeah, OK, this guy isn't really aware of the privilege that he has, you know, even though he's, you know, a brown person, you know, whatever. He's not white, but like his family is so wealthy and he's lived in a position of a lot of privilege and he just has no idea. But then when you actually read more about him and his family, it's actually rage inducing. It's infuriating. I I mean, he just pisses away his family's money constantly on Garfield Eats and Scooby-Doo Eats and these stupid fucking projects. Like, he's trying to get people to come and and date him for, like, a reality show that he thinks he's making on it by himself. 
Uh, actually, as of this, actually, when this comes out, it might be the same week that uh, Mary Nathan Masri is like being filmed, supposedly in Toronto. Oh, um, so okay. yeah, so and, and it's just bizarre because in the book he's like, oh, like being kind to people and helping people, and like, oh, I donated a hundred thousand dollars to a breast cancer charity because my mom had breast cancer. It's like, how many millions of dollars have you pissed away on Garfield? <laughs> like. It would have been just better to just put that all in the breast cancer charity. You would have done something a little bit better for the world. Yeah, it just sorry. It's that's the thing that's the most infuriating to me is just the lack of Absolutely. awareness. Like, you know, Absolutely. This, isn't, this isn't like the oppression Olympics. No one's saying that, but you do need to have appropriate context for analyzing you know, your own struggles in the world. You live in the world with other people. I, and it the worst part about it is that he spends the whole book talking about how important introspection is and self-reflection. And he has exactly. done none of it. None. <laughs> There's the part where he talks about his back surgery that we mentioned kind of <laughs> when the <laughs> Oprah sorry. thing came up. And, and like, he's talking about, like, oh, it's, it's going to be a tough surgery. Well, I was fortunate enough to be flown into the finest hospital in Saudi Arabia with, like, the surgeon for the royal princes and families out there. It's like, my dude, can't you see how maybe that's a little bit more privileged than what other people might have access to? Yes, it's bad that you have to deal with, you know, back issues and all these other things. But maybe a little bit of context there about how you had access to those things and maybe how having access to those things affects your mindset could could be helpful in in a self-help book like this there's a part where he claims that he he's had to work hard he just believes in himself and he wasn't using his dad's money but come on bro yeah he definitely was um every i mean Again, I don't have like concrete proof of this, but just from even a brief Googling. If you're getting surgery <laughs> from like, like the top surgeon in Saudi Arabia that works with royalty, I think maybe dad's money had a part to play in that. Oh, no, no. Hang, hang tight. Hang tight. I'm going to read this to you. So um, we are on. We are going to do page 57 to 58. I'm just going to read two excerpts. I turned around to see that the Bentley's windows were up and all the glass was fully tinted. We couldn't see the owner. He could have been some prince from among the 25,000 princes and princesses in the country. What could we do against a prince? We could easily be deported or sent to jail if some member of the royal family requested it. They might even stab you dead and get away with it due to their connections. Literally, I flip a single page and on page, sorry, 59. On August 28th at 9 a.m., it was time to head to a private hospital called the Military Hospital. This is where Saudi soldiers and members of the royal family receive medical treatment. I thank the Saudi royal family for their benevolence in paying the full balance of my major surgery at a cost of SAR 50000 or $3,500. This gave me access to the best surgeon and hospital in the kingdom. I mean, <laughs> it's two pages later. Oh, those evil Saudi royals. Thank you very much, Saudi royal family, for fixing my spine. <laughs> like... And, and it, it's this way throughout the entire book. Like, it starts off and he's like, oh, Saudi Arabia is terrible. They're so evil. They're so, you know, whatever, contradictory. And then by the end, he's like, oh, I love Saudi Arabia. You know, the, the last page you read even said something like that. Like, thank you, Saudi Arabia, for helping me figure out introspection. And 
so I, I just want to be very clear here. I am not I am not making the point that you cannot hold two ideas in your mind at once. But when you're writing a fucking memoir, you're trying to explain to other people what's going on in your head. And he does not do that. He just says, oh, the Saudis are so hypocritical. Oh, they pretend to be religious, but then they like, I don't know, do coke on strippers in, in the, you know, in the safety of their homes. And he's like, thank you, Saudi Arabia, for, you know, bankrolling my future or whatever. And there's no discussion about this cognitive dissonance. It just happens and you get nothing. You just Nothing. There's another part where he talks about how he really wanted to go to Canada for college because he really wanted to get out of Saudi Arabia after being there for eight years. And he found out at the last minute, like a couple months before he was supposed to leave, that the high school he went to in Saudi Arabia actually was not accredited like it claimed to be. And he was like, oh, my God, my life was over. I couldn't go to the university. And he's like, oh, but then like my dad talked to someone at the school and then they like made an exception for me. And I got to like transfer to another school and take the final exam there and like pretend that I went to that school. And then I got into college. Yay. And what? Like. Holy yeah, dad's shit. money never helped. It never helped. I mean, he, yeah, he doesn't explicitly say that, but that is the, the gist you get is like, I did everything on my own. I needed to work. It's like, dude, don't lie to people this way. It's just so obvious that he's just making stuff up. You know, it's, it's, it's a bummer. So <sighs> on top of this, he's very vague about any hardship he's experienced a lot of the time. Right. In the first portion of the book, he's alluding a lot to being made fun of or bullied by people right. as he's growing up. But it's ne we never get a specific example or even who exactly or what group of people was doing the bullying or what they were even making fun of him for. And I'm not going to sit here and say you must share all of your trauma in intimate detail in a book if you want me to, I don't know, believe or buy into your self-help stuff. But something would certainly give me insight into what bad things have shaped your thinking from experiencing this culture clash, as you describe in the first couple chapters of the book. He never he obviously he outlines some things that general Saudi Arabian culture might put upon someone who's moved there from living in a Western country for nine years of his life. But beyond what's generally available as data to the public, I'm not seeing any specific examples of what trauma and tragedy you experienced until we get later on, we get the very quick, you know, statement of like, yeah, I was diagnosed with HIV or I had diabetes. Like it's like one paragraph. And then we move on from there to never talk about or think about that ever again, which as Paris put before in a book about self introspection and self reflection, you would think there would be more of that digging in and detailing in here. Yeah, I believe the only example he gives of trauma that he experienced through bullying was some kids making fun of how he spoke or the clothes he wore. Um, there is one spe specific example. I'm sorry, I just can't remember it. And I don't think that I took a note on it, but it's unimportant largely in the grand scheme of this book. But um, as far as I can see, he was never jailed. He was never beaten um, I don't know. I mean, there was that one thing I read the very tail end of where they were chased in a car when he was with his mom and sister. But I, yeah, I don't really. 
like, yes, I understand that living in Saudi Arabia for someone like him who is, uh, I did he actually say he was gay or bisexual or did he specify? He definitely, I mean, yeah, that's, but you feel like that should be much clearer, right? I think yeah. he did at one point. Did, didn't he say something about like pursuing his male cousin? So, <laughs> all right, we can end with the, with that. Let's, let's, let's hang on. So, sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, he basically says, you know, someone like me who's, I mean, I don't think he actually, I don't remember if he says he's gay, but says he's attracted to men essentially and how that's a death sentence in Saudi Arabia. It's like, yeah, but it's not like, I mean, you clearly were just super wealthy and just never got caught and you just went to other countries to date men. So like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to sit here and say it's like the trauma isn't valid, but I just, I just don't have enough to go on here. Like, I yeah. you know, and especially when, you know, this isn't like some news article about, you know, people having these experiences. Of course, if it were something like that, I would never expect any kind of detail. And and even like you said, no one owes you their trauma. But when you're <laughs> when you're writing a memoir about how fucked up your life was, in Saudi Arabia and how much it damaged you and how you really had to do a lot of inward thinking and then we see none of that. It's just... As you put it, what do we have to go on? Yeah, we have we have nothing here. I mean... And, and we never even hear about his mom or sisters going through... Or his cousins, like, going through any kind of oppression. I mean... I mean, not that, you know, obviously, like, I would expect you'd, like, ask their permission or whatever, but... Um, yeah, it's just it's not it's not a descriptive enough book to make me care about anything he talks about. I think that is the the most concise way to say this. Yes, um, absolutely. Got a couple silly things towards the end. Um, on page 112, he talks about how his uh, branding company was so good and how he he and his company came up with the idea of brand groomers. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> not, not the phrasing <laughs> and brand want... brand okay. <laughs> yes oh wow real incredible marketing genius there brand groomers um yeah so i i uh i don't know why you would ever think that that's that's a good phrase uh, oh i made a note for big brain thoughts on page 167 and i don't even remember what that is. Go for it. Let's go for uh, it. We live in an individualized world where self-expression is crucial to our well-being. We live our lives on Instagram, voluntarily exposing our daily lives to the world. Suppression may also occur online by limiting people's freedom of speech on Twitter and restricting access to the opinions of the people who were born with no chains and will die without them. Limiting someone's freedom to click, share, or post their own private thought is like entering their house without a warrant and dictating what they can say in their own home. I don't know about that <laughs> one, man. I don't know it, about any of that. Especially when Facebook uh, and Instagram are not your own home. Yeah. They are not your own home. They are the public. They are outside. They are not in your house. <laughs> that, so. That's not your own house. Also, people misunderstand freedom of speech. Um... At least in terms of what the U.S. Constitution says. All the U.S. Constitution says is that we can't arrest you for being, like, 
mad and protesting about laws and stuff. That's kind of all it says. It doesn't say yeah. you can spout hatred on Twitter because you want to. <laughs> like, that's Yeah, not... that's... Oh, anyway. Uh, lastly, can we talk about the incest? Yeah. Okay. We had to mention it at some point, I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a thorn in this book side. Um Huh, yeah. So, uh Remember that male cousin I mentioned? Well, before? also the female cousins. Kind so, of also the female cousins. All right. So this might just be a cultural difference sure. that we are not comfortable with as Westerners in 2022, but um, he very freely talks about, or alludes to, I should say, he very freely alludes to having some kind of sexual contact with his female cousins, unfortunately named Paris and... Yeah, real unfortunate. What was the other one? I forget what the other one was. Um, Of course, I remember the one who has my name, uh, because that's I mean, yeah, that's going to stick with you. Um, And then he directly states that he and his male cousin were having sexual contact over a number of years whenever they could be alone. And, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say I'm not down with that. That seems like a bad time for all involved. You're literally children. By the way, they were actual children. Like, I don't even think that they were. Maybe they maybe they were teens. It was unclear. Yes, Um, it's very unclear. I guess he had to be at least 10, right? Because I think this started happening when. Yes. When Saudi Arabia was in the picture. And I, I think some of the things I hate the most about it are one that he blames the um, forced gender separation in public in Saudi Arabia for turning people gay. Which, you know, I just can't look again. This is a culture I do not live in. I do not know anyone from Saudi Arabia. I don't really want to sit here and like pass judgment on a society, but I also want to say that that seems pretty like heavy handed to just say, oh, because men and women can't socialize in public, therefore it makes people gay because they only have access to the same sex when they're horny as kids. That is basically what he is saying. And yeah, I don't know if that's true. I don't think true. that's how it works. That's yeah. I'm pretty sure. That's I don't think that's it, man. Yeah, I mean, like I understand what he is trying to say. Like, well, if you're a stupid horny child and you're stuck with only other men, I think he really just doesn't want to say that like people are a lot gayer than we think they are. And instead, yeah. he's like, oh, I'm going to blame this on Saudi Arabia. It's like, dude. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I don't, or to be clear, rather, I do not like the idea that genders, like women and men, have to be separated. Um, That's a very ridiculous, stupid rule that I do not believe in. Um, Although I am not, I am not Muslim. I do not live in Saudi Arabia. So what do I know? But uh, it seems terrible. It seems terrible. Not something I'd be down with. And I don't think that it causes people to be gay. That you know, they 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 felt sure. that way in the first place, I'm pretty sure. And I, if anything, he, he does make a point that it makes it easier to have that same-sex sexual contact, which I uh, guess is sure? true. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Except, I mean, 
women can't be alone without a man in public. So it's not like it's easy for the women. It's easy for men. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. So. Okay. And then the second second thing I hate about this cousin fucking is that um, when he's talking about his male cousin, he specifically states that he was very uh, persuasive, always had to be the one to make the moves and always got what he wanted. Whoa. Cool. So you basically admitted to. uh, Coercing your male cousin at a minimum. Sounds pretty bad, no matter what level it's at. Not cool, my dude. And, like, he basically writes about it with a sense of pride, it seems. He is not ashamed of this at all. Nope. Um, So, that's pretty fucked up. I mean, I have all sorts of negative feelings about all of this. I am trying to be generous, but I think it's awful. I don't think you should be having sex with your close family. I don't think you should be coercing or sexually abusing your family members. I don't think society should have needless gender separation and social settings. I mean, I hate all of this, right? Um, But even taking into account, like, cultural differences, it's still pretty fucking heinous and stupid. I hate it. I hate it so much. All right, Paris. Well, I think we can close with a poem that Mr. Masri places around page 119 in this book for, I don't know, Almost no reason. And before I say anything, I'm going to present this mostly without comment, except for the single comment of as an arts educator, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, never write anything. If this reads like a first try poem to me, and that's fine. It's, It's great to start practicing and start something like this. But I also don't think he wrote this, you know, one day as he puts it in the in the preceding paragraphs over here, I think he just put this in the book here because he thought it would be cool to have a poem in there. And I don't know, maybe this isn't something that you should have uh, put in a published work, let's say. Maybe you should have gone back to the drawing board. So um, I guess just to close us off here, here is Nathan Masri's Dear Saudi Arabia. Dear Saudi Arabia, I write to you and only you to express my love and anger for you. You have given me shelter. You have nurtured me forever. You have watched over my pitfalls and success, knowing I have gone through a mess, trying to find myself in the middle of the desert where love is impossible until you made me realize the only love I need is the love within which I must breed. Saudi Arabia, you have taught me to love myself. After consecutive heartbreaks in your sandy land, where on my head I would always land. But you brought me back up with your wisdom and love that for long I have taken for granted, blaming you for all my pain and failing to see what I've gained. Saudi Arabia, you never lost hope for me, as you knew very well what you have raised. I traveled the world in the seven seas. Let me say that again. I traveled the world and the seven seas. And lost myself Everybody to find myself <laughs> to find myself in your land again. Some yes, you possess. I'm trying to do a poem. <laughs> Some of them want a chino. It's a Garfacino. <laughs> I couldn't stop.
stop myself. I'm just like <laughs> delirious. It's it's really right in there. Like he just fucking lifts the line. <laughs> okay, continuing. Yes, you possess your suppressive rules. Yes, you know no freedom. Yes, you are intolerant to sins. Yes, you imprison the adventurous souls. And yes, you claim to know no evil. But may I kindly say that you unknowingly created devils in your land. What was once an angel in heaven became a devil in hell. You have forced your laws onto your citizens in the process creating little monsters among us, which was never your intention. Saudi Arabia, I write to you and only you to express my love and hate for you. I will always love you, no matter the worst have experienced, which nevertheless has brought the best out of me. I love you as I have grown wiser, faster, stronger, louder, peaceful, and collected. Thank you, Saudi Arabia, for loving me. I have so many feelings. Um... <laughs> Paris, can we fix it? Oh, I mean, not really. Like, no. I think, I think that no. if I didn't know anything else about him, I would just say... Hey man, hire an editor and maybe do several more drafts. Also get rid of the weird um, summaries and the laws. Just just write a regular memoir. It would be more compelling. You need to get into some more emotional depth, have more descriptive writing, uh, and some self-awareness. But I just don't think any of those things are possible. So I kind of feel like it's not fixable because he's not going to do any of that. Uh, yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that. Honestly, um, I you would have to rewrite this so many times to start approaching anything worth publishing. Yeah, for me, that this is really just a hey man, make sure you're not make sure you're adding something here that is descriptive or digging deeper into your emotional state instead of just saying, "Well, I was bored a whole lot. Also, I was repressed a whole lot. There, I learned from that." The end. Yeah, um, I have a final plea, uh, which is, Mr. Mossery, please use your family's vast wealth to hire an editor, a ghostwriter, anything. Please, I beg you. Use it for anything other than another cartoon ghost restaurant and app. Please. It's just sad to see all this wealth squandered when it could go to helping people who struggle with the things that he and his family have struggled with, like breast cancer or HIV and AIDS or diabetes or like, you know, religious repression. I mean, he could try to get laws changed with all the money and influence he has. Um, you know, instead, though, we get fucking rancid lasagna and Garfield shaped pizza and a guy who is basically a laughingstock despite having all of the opportunity in the world to do something positive and worthwhile. It's it. Oh, like I said, it's just infuriating. I <sighs> and just in case you're, you know, you're like, what do you mean he's a laughing stock? Well, if you haven't already figured that out, I mean, not only is his public persona just really distasteful, um, he also <laughs> owes substantial money in licensing fees and has faced numerous copyright lawsuits since his license was terminated. Uh, he tried, for example, like he tried to, um, make Garfield NFTs after the license was pulled. <laughs> uh, Smart move. and he's just, and he's just obsessed with getting people to like him. 
And so it's very clear that he doesn't take his own advice from his own book. Um, he also, like, uh, he gets mad every time anyone posts a negative review of his work, saying that it's destroying him, even though he continues to have piles of money and be able to buy his way into anything he wants. Uh, like I said, you know, now he's trying to get people to date him on camera and then, like, marry him. Uh, there's also a lot of questions about his businesses. You know, in the book, I think it's AB Communications, right? Yes. Uh, but every reference, like, I saw references online saying A3 Communications. <laughs> and it just. Maybe that three and the B and the logo are real close and you yeah, can't feel it. Maybe it's AB3. He was like, ABC, AB3. Yeah, that works. Um, <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But anyway, I, this person just, just drives me nuts. Um, yeah, and it's it's a rare it's a rare instance where we actually take the time to read about the author because normally we just, you know, just try to read the book and don't worry too much about the other white noise surrounding it. But this was just too weird to not at least read a little bit about. And yeah, like I think, Chris, you put it best. You said that the book is... The least interesting part of all of this, of this tornado. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, right. anyway, yeah, I had some advice there, but I don't think I don't think he's gonna do it, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> nope. All right. Well, let's move on with our lives now. Here, um, now we thank the patrons. Thank you to our patrons: Dari, Craig, Veronica, Will, D, Jared, Lynn, Senya, Jakub, like Chorus, Elliot. Kieran, Martin, Luchek, Miri, Yanka, David, Anya, Patricia, Austin, Donnie, Crimson Paladin, Beast with the Least, Scott H., Robin, Laxtodes of the Void, the Taco Eating Unicorn, Last Man on Earth 01, Funny Robot with Antennas, Hobby Boy 93, Selena, and our Kofi donor, Kiwi Thing. Thanks, everybody. All right, Paris, um, I think we're done here. I am going to go order a quesadilla shaped like Fred Flintstone. So, I, I mean, I've got important business to attend to. God damn it. Now I want a quesadilla, Chris. What have you done to me? <laughs> but it's Fred Flintstone shapes is the best kind where the cheese is melting out into like the little weird corners made by his big round nose and like the eyebrow that he has and that whatever you call that Fred Flintstone haircut. You know what I would say is that this sounds a lot like the food that I've heard about at Disney World or Disneyland, the Disney's, where it's not very good, but it's like shaped like stuff. But the difference is that people are so into the things that are shaped like Disney that they don't care. Whereas like not enough people give a fuck about Garfield or Fred Flintstone or Scooby-Doo, I think. (laughs) Okay, coming out next. My Zippy the Pinhead hot dog. <laughs> Wait, what's another like obscure character? Not even obscure, but like formerly popular that has fallen out of favor character. Uh, Felix the Cat fucking grilled cheese. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's another one? Um, uh, you know, the zebra from the zebra gum package. Let's do <laughs> Zebra gum. It's really shaped like the zebra. Uh, New. Rose is rose soup. You can't tell what the fuck's in there. <laughs> Much like rose is rose. But it comes in a can shaped like a rose. How did we <laughs> do it? I don't know, but you're probably going to ingest some metal. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good luck out there, everyone. Watch out <laughs> <Family>? for cartoon food. <laughs> Family. 
family circus circus peanuts. It's <laughs> shaped like all their heads. You had to eat them. Oh. Okay, submit your business ideas in the comments, please. <laughs> we'll see if I, your cartoon food-related businesses. Please submit them in the comments. Timon and Pumbaa hostess cupcakes. <laughs> okay, we gotta go. We got businesses to start up, everyone. No, I have Patent, we're, We own him. Patent pending. I have more terrible ideas. Uh, Bye, Paris. Thank you for listening to another episode of Terrible Book Club. Terrible Book Club is an independent podcast produced by your hosts, Paris and Chris. Sound design and audio editing by Chris, with sound effects and music by Epidemic Sound and sometimes also Chris. Our theme song is Kiss by Yearn, which is, you guessed it, actually, also Chris. You can find more of his soothing synthy sounds on Bandcamp at yearn.bandcamp.com. Do you want us to review a book of your choice on the show? Do you want access to some extra audiovisual weirdness? If so, become a patron at patreon.com slash terriblebookclub. If you'd like to send us a one-time tip instead, you can do that at ko-fi.com slash terriblebookclub. You can also support TBC for free by sharing the show on social media, following our accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Goodreads, telling your friends about your favorite episode, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else on the internet. To send us book recommendations or your adorable pet photos, send an email to terriblebookclub at gmail.com.